Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, the King's coronation will be held on May 6 in London in a little over a month and will cost an estimated 100 million pounds, more than twice what his mother Elizabeth's, uh, Charles's mother Elizabeth's cost in 1953. It will be more complicated too. Elizabeth wasn't burdened with the dilemma of where to put people like Prince Andrew, whose liaison with the appalling Jeffrey Epstein has made him about as popular in Britain as Dan Andrews at a Chinese Uyghur concentration camp. King Charles also has the headache of what to do with his wayward son, Harry, and his charming wife, Meghan Markle, whose acceptance of an invitation comes with a list of conditions that may or may, or may not include a guarantee to join the family on, on the balcony at Buckingham Palace afterwards in a show of unity that will fool nobody. But that is not the facade we are here to discuss tonight. Whatever role Harry and Meghan play in the coronation doesn't affect us. But the way Charles approaches the throne does. And already Charles is approaching it in a way that should alarm monarchists and will probably delight Republicans. He had been king for less than two months before he hosted a function at Buckingham Palace for 200 environmentalists, including, of course, fashion designer Stella McCartney, daughter of Sir Paul McCartney, who, of course, is himself pop royalty. Some of those guests were on their way to the COP27 climate crisis meeting in Egypt and had diverted their private jets to Heathrow to pop in and get whatever instructions were on offer from Charles at the palace. The idea of these elites flying around the world attending royal functions at palaces makes as much sense as Victorian Premier Dan Andrews lecturing Australians about human rights from a visit to China hosted by the tyrannical CCP. Does Charles himself have tyrannical tendencies? He is, after all, the founder of a group called the Sustainable Markets Initiative, whose goal is to encourage multinational corporations to implement, quote, practical action to help the private sector accelerate their progress towards a sustainable future, unquote. Well, that's a euphemism for a more expensive future for the likes of you and I. Here he is explaining why this is so important. We've forgotten sometimes, I think, that, that we are part of nature. So what we do to the world around us, we are doing totally to ourselves. We can't go on, I think, equivocating on this and just expect us to test the world ultimately to destruction before you can prove that you have destroyed it. It is climate change. That's pointless to me. There is life after apparent death from the current conventional approach. Pretty dramatic stuff. One doesn't relinquish these ideas just because one has acceded to the throne of the United Kingdom. Will Charles become an interventionist monarch, insisting his subjects comply with measures imposed by his friends in the political and corporate worlds to save the planet? 
Let's bring in the esteemed monarchist, Professor David Flint, to talk about it. Professor Flint, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's start with how much power the king has to impose his political ideas, which are very uh, emphatic and obvious. Technically, his powers are limited, but informally, doesn't he exercise a lot of influence? Well, certainly he does exercise influence, but not undue influence. I think we sometimes forget those of us who have a different view in relation to global warming, we forget that uh, he is really reflecting in many respects the attitudes not only of the government of every realm, that is all of the countries of which he is king, but in addition, the leaders of the opposition of every one of those countries. Very few, very few sitting politicians in any country uh, take a stand against the current views, the received views on global warming. I think the last one, the last prominent one, who saw some, as you and I would think, uh, reality, was President Trump. But most, uh, most prime ministers, most presidents, certainly from the point of view of the king in relation to realms, most prime ministers, all prime ministers of those realms and all leaders of the opposition take the orthodox view, which is twofold, as you know. Firstly, a belief in the uh, infallibility of the theory of man-made global warming, and secondly, in the infallibility, too, of the solution proposed uh, in Paris, that is to say, net zero. But wouldn't you agree that most monarchists find the idea of climate change a bit of a scam? I think uh, most active monarchists in Australia who belong to monarchist organisations are probably inclined to also suspect the theory of uh, global warming. I think that's probably true. I'm not completely sure. I can think, for example, of one very leading monarchist who was uh, very prominent in the foundation of Australians for constitutional monarchy, and I have no doubt that he would be very much in favour of the orthodox view. Yes, well, the monarchy uh, from an Australian perspective is a symbol of a bygone form of elitism, but elitism most often these days is applied to the climate cult and the people who are trying to impose it on us. So aren't the two, are the two joined at the hip, Professor? Well, there are two types of elites. I think uh, using the term elite in the sense used by American philosophers, political philosophers, actually refers to those on the left who hold prominent positions, particularly in universities and in the media and in politics, who take a view which is much akin to what Lenin called left-wing communism, which he also referred to as an infantile disorder. That is to say, a form of left-wing communism which really adopts all sorts of peculiar views and positions which seem to be undermining Western civilization. Uh, that, that seems to be the sort of people that are referred to as elites. The old version of elite just merely meant those at the top of society in the sense of the order of society and 
Consequently, the, the monarchy and the aristocracy were thought of as a, the very elite end, the, the grand bourgeoisie, and uh, then further down where you and I belong. That's a very, that's a very good distinction, an important distinction to make. The, the previous elites were elites of, uh, and naturally conservative, of a society or a civilization that they too wanted to preserve. The new uh, elites represents something that, in my mind, threatens the civilization that we have. I mean, the point I made earlier that Charles's SMI organization is going to make life more expensive for people like you and I, that places him well and truly in the middle of these new elites that you refer to, doesn't it? Well, those new elites are often very wealthy and uh, they're often executives in uh, organizations, in corporations. Rarely are they small businessmen, people who've made themselves, who've achieved things themselves, but they are certainly along those lines. Uh, he, he has been uh, very much attracted to the view, the theory of global warming. But on the other hand, this is not, uh, I don't think one can typecast him into the form of a new elite. For example, his views on such matters as architecture, are very much traditional. His views, for example, on the liturgy, on the Book of Common Prayer, his preference for the Cramnerian version of uh, the English liturgy is very old and not the sort of thing which would attract uh, uh, the modern elite. So I don't think we can really typecast the king. Yes, but if, if you, like me, think that this climate cult is a serious threat to Western civilization, and traditionally, I do con consider the monarchy an essential part of that, of that structure, How, what's your advice to people like me, and there's quite a few of us, I'd argue, who, whether or not we should support this monarchy? I mean... I, I can't understate it, Professor, that we are, Western civilization is in a fight for its survival. And one of the key threats to its survival is this climate cult that is restricting uh, freedom of movement, freedom of enterprise, in some ways freedom of speech, and the king is right behind it. Why should we support him? The organisation that uh, I belong to, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, is essentially one which is united on the constitutional importance of the Crown as an institution. It was the Crown that came here in 1788. It is the Crown that has been with us on every important occasion. It is the institution. And it's an institution which is exercised at different levels. For example, the governors general and the governors exercise the powers of the crown, but it is the institution which is the important thing. And uh, in our, in our uh, charter, for example, it is accepted that many of us, including John Howard, many of us regard ourselves as already a republic. We are a, a crowned republic in the sense that Montesquieu recognised the English monarchy as effectively, a, he called it a disguised republic. We say it is a crowned republic. That is very much reflected in the views of our founders who decided that this country should take 
the name Commonwealth. Now, what is a Commonwealth? It is certainly, in one of its many meanings, it is certainly the English word for a republic. So we are already Republicans, but we support a crowned republic in which the king plays a significant role but he does not play a powerful role. His, his power, as with the power of the crown, is not so much the actual power the king wields or the crown wields, it is the power they deny others. And it is what he sets as a standard in relation to the others who exercise the power of the crown, that is the governors general and the governors. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a more complicated than that. It's not as simple as what are his views, for example, on the Book of Common Prayer, what are his views, for example, on, uh, on uh, modern architecture, what are his views even on, uh, on global warming. Uh, these are not important. What, are, what is important is that he maintains the office of the king and uh, thereby the crown, and that's the important institution in our system. And uh, the, the Westminster system really only works properly with a crown. It doesn't work well with, with some sort of imposed president. For example, uh, uh, all of the models which have been proposed by the Republican establishment have been politicians' republic. Every one of those models which are being proposed as alternatives to the existing system are ones in which the powers of the political class would be increased. That's right. And this is exactly my point, Professor, because what you're describing is, uh, is, is a, a superficial uh, um, role in which you know, powers would be denied by a someone who's elected or appointed as a president. But when, you, as the world saw, when the Queen died, there was an outpouring of emotion and sentimentality, not for the role that she played, but for what she represented. And what she represented was, I would, I would predict, is going to, was entirely different to what King Charles will represent in his, in his term as king. Would you agree or disagree with I, that? I think I would disagree with that because I think he has gone, uh, he has tried as hard as he can to avoid uh, being or making the statements that he made as Prince of Wales. Now you do point, for example, to the function which he held at the palace where people on their way to some uh, uh, COWP or whatever it's called function, which relates to global warming, were invited. But uh, most of those functions which are held, those sorts of functions where political people come, are done on the advice of the British government because he is there acting as the head of state of the United Kingdom, as the governor general would in Australia. If the governor general held a function to which uh, political people were invited from around the world, that would be done on the advice of the federal government. Yes, you say that, but you, you say that, uh, that, that all these people who attend represent the, some sort of political consensus that the world is about to end, thanks to human uh, carbon dioxide production. I'd suggest that whenever, whenever that is put, to an, uh, put in an election platform, 
and the cost of dealing with it is included, the people thoroughly reject it. So to say that there is political consensus about climate change is one thing, but that doesn't represent the will of the people because when the will of the people are told, oh, okay, we can end climate change, but it's gonna cost you another $50,000 a year, they disagree. So how, how can one uh, reconcile this difference between the people and these new elites of which King Charles is one. But uh, there was one, uh, one problem in that uh, presentation, and that is that the people are never told how much it's going to cost. In fact, the cost is hidden more and more, or it is blamed on other things. You, you no doubt have uh, heard the, uh, the foreign minister not, and also the energy minister and the prime minister referring to the, the war the war which is going on in the, the Ukraine. And that's being blamed for the rise in the price of energy. All sorts of things will be used to explain that. The people will not be told that the increase in the cost of energy to them is the direct result of the, the rigorous application of the theory of global warming. So people are not going to know that. And as far as possible, that will be hidden from the people. That is. That is the unfortunate practice of our, our leaders at the moment. But I don't think we should blame the king for that. <laughs> well, I blame him for being one of them. Okay, so let's just, let's just uh, get the, break out the, uh, the crystal ball. How will King Charles' uh, term as king of the United Kingdom pan out? Will Republicans learn to love him because he's such a greenie? And will monarchists find him a little bit uh, odious? Well, of course, there's only some monarchists, as I pointed out. There would be some, some monarchists, and I can think of uh, some, particularly one, who will no doubt be fully, fully excited over the fact that the king is obviously uh, a follower of the theory of global warming, as I suspect most people are. Uh, I think most people would think, because of the massive amount of propaganda, that man is creating this problem. They're told all the time, for example, that every serious weather event, in fact, every weather, every weather report on television seems to be told with a certain hysteria as though this has never happened before, that the temperature has never gone up so high. And there, there is this constant, constant propaganda into our eyes and ears to suggest uh, the theory of global warming is as, uh, is as uh, infallible as the Holy Scripture, and we all have to believe it. <laughs> no wonder Charles is on side. Um, just, and just finally, what's your expectations of the coronation? Will it be spectacular, or will the in internal ruptures in the family cause it uh, to be a bit of a disappointment? I think it will be impressive. It will be very, for those of us who are spiritual, we all have spiritual moments, I think we should relish that. We should really take, take a very great interest in that because this, we are really going back to the kings of ancient Israel. The anointing of the king is the most important part of the ceremony and that will be a, a very important part. But the whole thing is, a, is a, something so strange and mysterious which people have, most people today have never seen anything like it. I think people will be, they will be very receptive. 
Uh, I can go back to the last coronation and we didn't see that immediately. We heard it over short wave and much more difficult to comprehend, but to actually see it as it is proceeding, it will be for anybody interested in, in history, in, in symbolic acts, in acts with meaning, this will be a very important act of great religious uh, importance. And uh, it, it will, for those of us, those who think about it, they will see that it is very much rooted in the very basis of Western civilization, and it is very important. It's the only, incidentally, I think, uh, apart from a Tongan version, which is based on uh, what happens at, uh, at uh, Westminster, uh, it's now the only coronation left. None of the European kings, European kings or queens, in the, the other constitutional monarchies now have coronations. Well, all of that is very true, but I must say that unless the banquet is fully vegan, cooked in solar-powered ovens, I'm going to find the whole thing just a little bit hypocritical. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Professor David Flint. Thank you. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for Professor Flint's own show, Save the Nation, at 8 o'clock. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, -E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course, the great Alan Jones, by going to adh.tv or downloading our app or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. Have a great weekend with the people you love and I'll see you on Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.